Welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm Michal Stein. And I'm Lydia Abrahab. We're really not in a position where, in any kind of public way, people have an interest or knowledge of what happens in jails and prisons, right? What people have is, is TV shows, right? There's a lot of media, and people have a very inaccurate kind of portrait from watching Law and & Order, and there's a kind of impression that everybody in jail is a serial killer or a serial rapist, and you watch those shows, and by the time you get to the end of an episode of Criminal Minds, you hate those people too, right? You're like, oh my God, I just go to jail. But of course, you don't know that the majority of people in prison are there for crimes of poverty. The majority of people are there mentally ill, nonviolent crime. That's Elle Jones, a poet and professor at Mount St. Vincent University. She's also an advocate who lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Elle has been working with and advocating for prisoners since she was the Poet Laureate of Halifax in 2013. Today on Pull Quotes, we ask, what are journalists getting wrong in our coverage of people in prison? What kind of harm can that do? What do we need to do better? We'll hear from Elle in a moment and from Olson Crow, an activist and Ryerson student. But first... I've been friends with Jackie Omstead, now the Community Programs Coordinator at the Elizabeth Fry Society, since 2015. She's the person who got me thinking about this topic and challenged me to reevaluate my own bias when it comes to media coverage of prisoners. She joins us now. With me on the phone is Jackie Omstead. Jackie, welcome to Pull Quotes. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Jackie, can you explain a little bit about what the Elizabeth Fry Society is? Sure. Um, So I'm the Community Programs Coordinator at Elizabeth Fry Toronto. Um, And Elizabeth Fry uh, Toronto supports women who are in conflict with the law or who have been in conflict with the law um, or are vulnerable to being in conflict with the law. Last year, uh, the Toronto Star published an article about uh, a theater program that was in a prison that you were working on um, outside of Gravenhurst. And uh, at the time, you uh, wrote this really thoughtful Facebook post um, that took issue with the article. And and that was actually one of the first things that kind of got me thinking about this and got me kind of critically analyzing um, my own beliefs and um my own way of thinking about things. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, what the problems were that you saw with that article? Sure. Um, so the person who came to write that article came kind of to review the the show was my understanding of why they were there. Um, and they wrote uh, an article kind of talking about, um, I think I, if I remember correctly, the headline was something like, can a theater program help rehabilitate uh, offenders or help rehabilitate Ontario prisoners? Um, and to me, right off the bat, if we take into account the, the ideas I was talking about earlier about people coming into conflict with the law um, because they are being disenfranchised by the other systems um, within our society and how our society is structured then this idea of theater being able to rehabilitate someone or even the concept of rehabilitation as like an individual self-contained activity that can be achieved through a prison or through a stay at prison kind of starts to break down. Um, Especially like theater isn't going to make anyone less 
precariously housed and theater isn't going to uh, make the society less racist or certainly is, and so or at least not on its own and so when I see a headline like that um, it to me shows a lack of understanding about actually how complex these systems are and what theater's relationship or programming or prison's relationship is to those issues. And perhaps more concerning than that is the choice that the journalist made to use the men who were working on the on the program, the actors and the stage managers and the designers, use their full names, which is one thing, um, but then to also, along with their full names, list um, their crimes. And to me, um, it's not that I don't agree that we should be engaging, or it's not that I want us to not be honest or truthful about the crimes that people have committed. Those are part of the narrative and part of what we have to hold um, when we talk about these things. Um, but the decision to put them that within this article that's about their success in this theater program, um, without any contextualization, um, to me, is just a way of sensationalizing and also causes further harm to them as people who are trying to soon reintegrate into the community. A lot of these guys were nearing the end of their sentence, so now their names are back uh, in the press associated with their crimes. Um, and it also impacts, I imagine, the, the families of the victims who are also listed in the article somewhat inexplicably. And so I think about the families who's maybe have a Google alert on for their loved one's um, name and suddenly their name pops up in relationship to this theater article by the person who caused that harm to their family member. And I just don't really understand what the point of that would be from a, from a journalistic standpoint of including that information. With that in mind, I think about kind of the overarching narrative of the piece, which positions the facilitator of, of the project and like the other volunteers on the project, like such as myself, all of whom were young white women going into a men's prison. And they, they, it really positions the, the, the director of the project or the facilitator of the project as kind of being in a position to be able to, to rehabilitate or to um, like save these, these men, which I think is a really harmful narrative to put forward. In doing that, what the article really misses out on is all of the amazing work that the men were doing to make the show happen. I want to talk to you a little bit about your um, your hesitation to come on pull quotes. Uh, we've been talking about this for a couple months um, back and forth. Um, you shared a lot of great resources with me and um, I have been pestering you to come uh, talk on the podcast about it. Uh, you made it very clear that you were only interested in speaking on our podcast if we also included the voice of uh, someone who'd been incarcerated. Can you talk a little bit about why you took that stand? Sure. Um, I think it kind of relates back to this article and um, my response to it um, is that we, as people who aren't incarcerated, when we're telling the stories of people who are incarcerated, there's the opportunity for people who are incarcerated to tell their stories. We kind of need to 
get out of the way um, and let people do that or let the stories be about the people that they're actually about. And, and so when we think about representation in any context, we can recognize the importance of people with lived experience being experts on their own experience. Um, and I just, I think that that translates over into this work or into people who have been impacted by the criminal justice system or whatever we want to call it, um, in the same ways. I don't think anymore we would have, or at least I would hope not, we would have a panel about how women are represented, um, in the media and not have any women speak to that. And I think that translates over to people who have been incarcerated. We want to value their experience, treat them as experts of their own experience, and to me, um, as someone who hasn't experienced incarceration and who um, is not from a community that is, is criminalized, I, I feel like unless, what am I doing in, if not making sure that I am using that privilege to create spaces for those voices to come in and to advocate for them to be heard. Jackie, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. me today is Olson Crow, who is a former inmate and a abolitionist advocate. Thank you, Olson, for coming on today. Happy to be here. Um, could you tell us your connection to incarceration or harm reduction that you're comfortable with sharing? Yeah, definitely. Um, so when I was, I actually turned 16 while I was incarcerated. Uh, so I was incarcerated both in Windsor, Ontario and outside of Guelph. Um, I was incarcerated on the grounds that youth in care have often have different rules to follow uh, than non-youth in care. Also, for example, what I ended up being incarcerated for is not technically a crime in Canada. Uh, so I was incarcerated for missing curfew, which is considered different. If you're in a group home, it's considered going AWOL. Um, so I was placed in a group home because I lived in a very small rural Ontario town and they didn't have foster homes. So the next option for me was to be moved to Guelph to be placed in a group home while other placements were awaited. Um, while I was in that group home, I was the only youth who was allowed to attend uh, public high school. Um, I had a, it wasn't a parent-teacher interview because I wouldn't have been <laughs> at that, um, but it was something along those lines. It was like a meet the teacher thing um, and very much like I am now. I just really like getting involved with different things, especially at school. Um, so I was staying to volunteer. Um, one of my teachers had offered to drive me home Um but the only thing was that it would make me, I think it was around 15-ish minutes late for my 9.30 uh, curfew. So we said that we would call the group home ahead of time to make sure that that was okay. Uh, we had called the group home. Uh, they said that that was fine. However, when I had arrived, there was police constables waiting for me. Uh, and once I arrived home, I was uh, restrained by three adult male officers um, and taken into custody um, for a period of seven months. So that was when my experience with incarceration started, um, and it was a not a great experience. Um, but yeah, how would you describe journalists' coverage of prisoners and people with conflict in the law? That I guess that you are aware of, to your knowledge. Yeah, yeah. I find a lot of times when we have conversations about incarceration, whether it be in journalism or whether it be just in post-secondary in general, or just the way that it's talked about in terms of reporting, um, it very rarely comes from an inmate perspective. Um, and it's very commonly done 
uh, by like a legal perspective, a police officer's perspective, a prison guard's perspective even. Um, so it's really interesting that oftentimes inmates' voices are actually left out of these conversations. And I think it's because there's this stigma around inmates being undereducated, um, not being able to speak to their experiences, these big, scary criminals. Um, when I tell people that I've been incarcerated, they're always really shocked. And I always say, the fact that you're so shocked is a problem because how are you seeing inmates and how are you looking at the state of incarceration in Canada? Especially for me as an Indigenous person, when we look at the way it's reported, um, in media, for example, the only reason when we unpack it at the end of the day I was incarcerated was because I was an Indigenous person, was because I was taken in the millennial scoop um, by Children's Aid. So, And these are a lot of people's stories. And those times, those narratives that kind of have um, those aspects of equity and intersectionality incorporated in them are oftentimes left out of those conversations. That, that's really interesting. So, like, what do you, what do you think could... Um because uh, I, I think there's a conversation as well that journalists have with like getting two inmates in prisons because there's so many barriers around mm-hmm. that as well. Um, and in what ways could, I guess, like people in media build relationships with people who are in the who are incarcerated and what can improve that, I guess, in a way? Yeah, for sure. It definitely is tricky because also prisons don't want their inmates speaking to media. Right. Um, we know that there are large human rights atrocities in Canadian prisons. Uh, For example, the institution that I was in refused to fill out any of our medications for a three-month period. Um, So when we're looking at different things like that, it's very understandable why the police and why prison officials don't want their inmates speaking to media, um, because it can kind of do that airing out uh, effect. So it is definitely tricky to get those interviews, to get those voices heard. Um, But I think something that can be done is reaching out to organizations like PASAN, for example, um, and different organizations that do prison advocacy work, because maybe they're not able to get somebody to that interview that's inside the facility, uh, but maybe they're able to get someone who's recently released or on parole um, or on probation and different things like that. Mm -hmm. What do you see stigmatized in the media? And I guess you you did speak Mm -hmm. a little bit to that before. But um, what other issues do you think have been stigmatized in the media when it comes to people incarcerated? Yeah, I think a lot of the times when we talk about incarceration, also, we also talk about men being incarcerated. And oftentimes we leave out the conversations of women um, and trans people being incarcerated. Um, So, for example, the Grand Valley Institute for Women is one of Canada's largest prisons, and it's fully a woman's prison. Um, And we don't talk about the different issues and barriers that women face in prison. Uh, For example, women identifying and folks who menstruate, um, inmates are forced to pay for their own menstruation products. When you're making cents on your job, how are you supposed to afford menstruation products on a monthly basis? Um, And if you are free bleeding, for example, because you couldn't afford menstruation products that week, you can get written up and put in solitary confinement. Um, So when we're having conversations about incarceration, women's issues um, and trans and two-spirit issues are so frequently left out of those conversations. Uh, For example, for me, um, I was fortunate to not have realized I was a trans person when I was incarcerated, uh, because if I was, I would have been subjected to mandatory solitary confinement for the duration of my sentence. Um, And that's something we don't talk about. Trans inmates are very oftentimes forcibly put into segregation units where they're under 23 hours a day lockdown because it's not safe for them to be in general population is the excuse that's used, where I'd very much disagree. Um, so when we're having conversations about different identities intersecting with the prison system, we need to be talking about those identities as well. Uh, so I think that's kind of tricky and sometimes where narratives fall short. I guess, well, now that we've talked about issues that have been stigmatized in the media, like what kind of tropes do you find that like the media sensationalizes, I guess, when we're talking about people incarcerated? I think it's really fun to stigmatize and make the scary criminal, um, 
make the scary criminal a, a fun news story. Um, even, for example, when people are released on various sex crimes, for example, not that I am saying that that is okay at all, uh, but I think that when we're talking about the justice system, I very much follow a lot of abolitionist work. I'm a huge fan of Angela Davis's work. She very much talks about uh, the idea of carceral feminism and that the carceral feminism doesn't exist. And when we're having conversations, this is slightly off tangent, I apologize, but when we're having conversations, even in times like the Me Too era where we're advocating for abusers to go to prison, it's actually counterproductive to send rapists and sexual assaults uh, perpetrators or pedophiles to prisons. It's been proven that it only causes higher results of recidivism. Versus when we talk about community justice models, it's been proven uh, that in order to actually get this person to not commit these crimes again, that comes from community care. Uh, so when we talk about supporting survivors, that also means supporting abusers. As a survivor myself, that narrative can oftentimes be hard to grapple with, especially when survivors don't have that support as well. Um, but I think all of these parts of the conversation are so frequently left out, and we are so dependent on you seeing prison um, as the only solution, and we haven't looked at other alternatives. So I think it's very fair that media sensationalizes prisons in that way because we see shows like Orange is the New Black, uh, like Wentworth, um, and different TV shows like that where it very much makes prison look like this very dramatic, exciting thing where it's very much not the case. It's a very sad, somber environment. Um, yeah, so it's it's very interesting. What kind of best practices do you think journalists should adopt while covering people who are incarcerated or are in conflict with the law? Definitely. Um, as a criminology student, also uh, with a double minor in criminal law and business law, um, following the law is something that I, I find really interesting from a legal standpoint. So I think oftentimes when I think of going back to the criminology and the framework that I have to understanding crime, nobody commits a crime just because they kind of felt like it. Very oftentimes there are socioeconomic issues that led to that crime. There are social issues that led to that crime and some form of marginalization or impact in that person's life has led to that crime. Um, I used to say that, okay, that was the case for everyone except for these super like white, rich, privileged boys, for example, who commit these crimes. But even then, we saw the legal defense of affluency in the United States when a young man was drinking and driving in his sports car and killed a family, where he's like, I was never told no. So I like dealing with rules and things like that is tricky to me, which I think is <laughs> interesting and privilege at its finest. But even when we look at cases like that, right, there was something that led up to that person committing that crime. I don't think folks who commit crime are necessarily inherently bad. And I think most crimes are unfairly penalized. I think a lot of drug crimes, for example, I am very much a believer that all drugs should be legalized. Because um, we've seen that that doesn't necessarily increase drug use. But I think when we're having these conversations around and when media is talking about these things to make sure that we're not sensationalizing the aspect of like this person is a horrible person, X, Y and Z. And also watching the way we talk about race when we're talking about inmates and talking about crime. Um, very oftentimes we see color coded uh, reporting when it comes to crime, incarceration, and inmates. For example, when a young white man commits a crime, and not even then, like I saw a comparison in media this week um, where it was a 19-year-old white boy had committed murder, and they're like, oh, no, where did he go wrong? But when a 17-year-old black boy committed theft, it was this man is charged with grand theft. So who gets to be a man? Who gets to be a child? Uh, who gets to be innocent until proven guilty, and who is guilty from the get-go? Um, and making sure that we're understanding all these areas of intersections and socioeconomic 
issues and social issues when we're doing that reporting to make sure we're not furthering stigmatizing folks. Because when media further stigmatizes folks, that also gives a message to the legal system that it's okay to over-incarcerate Indigenous people, that it's okay to over-incarcerate Black folks. Um, so I think media is very powerful in a sense that it very much sets our tone where our society thinks. Because the media that we're divulging and the news that we're reading infects the way we think about certain issues. So if we're constantly seeing these same things reported in that way, we're going to believe that those are the criminals. Um, so what are we doing to kind of unpack that notion? Because we know that white folks actually commit more crimes uh, than racialized folks in this country. But still, Indigenous women make up 43% of the women's prison populations in Canada and only 4.2% of the population. Um, so it's just interesting on who gets read. Thank you so much, Olson, for coming and talk today. With me on the phone today from Halifax, Nova Scotia, is Elle Jones. Elle Jones is a poet, professor, and advocate. Elle, welcome to Pull Quotes. Thank you. Elle, can you talk a little bit about um, your involvement with prisons in Nova Scotia? So I got involved in prison justice work, I suppose, through poetry would be really the entrance point. So when I became Poet Laureate in particular, I had mentioned at that point that one of the groups I was interested in making sure were included in poetry in the city were people in prison. And a young man who was incarcerated at that time contacted me and said, well, he had a bunch of poems and could I look at them? And so from there, um, things kind of developed organically in terms of the work I'm doing now. So I was on a radio show at the time and he ended up calling in and sharing his work on that radio. And then other prisoners began calling in because they could hear his work and they wanted to share theirs. And eventually that turned into what we have now, which is the Black Power Hour, which is a, a radio collective uh, run collectively with people in prison um, that's both an educational platform, an arts platform, a political platform. Um, so they have a radio show where they decide the content and what sort of things we share there. But also through that work, um, it's a real platform for them to organize and for the issues to get out there. So as well as a radio show, we have a collective journalism project. So um, they've done various articles about the conditions in jail. Um, they've done stuff about phone costs. They've done stuff about what it's like to be in a cell and have somebody die in custody beside you. So their voices have been able to get out there without having a reporter have to say it. Um, they've been able to tell their own stories. And then beyond that, we do a lot of kind of legal support. Um, I actually just came from court today, actually. So we're dealing in the province with issues about habeas corpus. So that's an application that challenges the conditions of confinement. So they've been trying to get the conditions of confinement changed. So they've locked down all the time. They're barely out of their cells. And so that's something that we're very heavily involved in right now is, is trying to find a way for them to find justice in that process. So um, we really deal with a number of things through BPH, but it's all prisoner-led. So they will call me up and say, this is what they're doing. They're trying to do a habeas application. And then I will attempt to find them the supports they need or amplify that by writing about it. Um, stuff like that. And I imagine that from a logistical perspective, that must be quite challenging, um, seeing as there are so many restrictions on prisoners in their access to things like phones or other uh, means of communications. What are some of the logistical challenges of doing this? So this is something that particularly came out during the prison strike, where I think that particularly mainstream media was quite um, confused and stymied by this. So 
there was a prison strike in the United States that started so it was August 21st to September 9th and the guys in the prison out here so in the provincial jail I mean um, Birdside decided to join that strike and release their own demands around the kind of conditions they're facing so both in America and in Canada this became quite um, there's quite a lot of news about it and so some of you had reporters that were trying to deal with this idea of how do we speak to somebody in prison. And one of the things that was happening both in the states here is that you would see reporters call, um, you know, the Justice Department or call corrections, and they would deny anything was happening inside the jail. They would say, no, there's no strike. And then the reporters would be very confused because the authorities say nothing's happening, but we have here a manifesto by prisoners. So it was really a challenge to kind of the traditional way that journalism happens. So what is happening, and I think increasingly happening now, is that um, as we see cuts in journalism, so things like having a daily court report no longer exist in no jurisdictions. We've seen, obviously, media, um, big media conglomerates, right? And as that happens, they pull the local reporter and you just have sort of one national source. And, of course, the problem with that is just basic things like attending city hall, attending the police board, attending court. Those things they no longer have reporters for. So those kind of basic access to justice and uh, pieces of information falls to the wayside. So with justice reporting and crime reporting and things that are going on in our jail, we don't have anybody that's covering that. And then what happens, of course, is then because people have to write a lot of very quick stories, you just go to the Crown and you say, oh, what's happening in this case? You get a report, you file it. You go to the justice minister, you say, is this happening? And they say, no, and you file it. So suddenly there's a situation where you had one group of people that were able, through platforms like BPH, through the Halifax Examiner, where I write, were able to get out this information, and that information clearly countered what we were seeing people in authority saying. And that was very, very challenging for people trying to report on this, so they couldn't understand why they couldn't just access a prisoner, why they could just call somebody up and ask them these questions. And I say this because it raised a lot of those challenges around why can't we know what's happening in our jails and prisons, right? Why do people not know that we spend, so we spend $6,000 a month provincially to keep somebody in jail, yet there's no accountability around what programming they have. You're dealing with the same kind of injustice all the time. So all we can do is, um, you know, we, we do our best step by step, and it's really, you know, we talk to the prisoners and we try in small ways to at least get their side out there and at least try to shift some of this opinion so that one day somebody might have the will, the political will, to do something about it. So what what do you think journalists need to start doing to address um, inherent biases that they might have and start trying to undo some of that harm in the journalistic work that they do? Well, I think, first of all, before I even move to individual journalists, I sort of alluded to this. I think, obviously, a lot of this is systemic, right? The in order to understand these issues, you have to spend a lot of time thinking about them. You don't just wake up one day. Like, if, if I was asked as reporters to go report on cars, I don't know anything about them, right? So you can walk me through the showroom. If somebody tells me this kind of car is this kind of engine, I'm going to be like, okay, sounds good. I don't know any better. Someone who knows cars might be like, oh, that's not even true. Like, why would you write that, right? But I don't have access to know that unless I spend time learning that. I'm never going to know. And it's the same thing with something like prison issues. I think and talk about these issues I spend every day on the phone with people in prison, talking to lawyers, going to court. So by nature, you build up knowledge so that when I see an article and say someone from the jail is saying something, like the head of corrections or something, I can know if that's true or not true. And I can say, no, 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 that's not true. Like I read that in the Auditor General's report two years ago. or you know, So I have that access to information. That takes time. And so if you're a reporter and you don't have a beat, where you can sit down and say, I'm the court reporter and I'm on a justice beat, and it means every day I go to court and every day I see what happens and I become familiar with this and I have time to research, then yeah, if you're one minute out here covering the basketball game and the next minute you're asked to go cover this case, how can we expect that person to do rigorous reporting, right? So a lot of it is obviously 
this, and I would argue, the deliberate cutting of journalism, which is obviously part of the general neoliberal um, agenda, right? So that we have no oversight for our institutions, right? So increasingly there's no accountability, whether that's from politicians, whether that's from corporations, whether that's from billionaires, you know, whoever we're talking about, what instrument do we have to hold people accountable anymore? And we're just increasingly seeing that being eroded in, in all areas of life, right? We're just seeing public accountability being eroded everywhere, and that's true of journalism. So when you have these cuts, you don't have local journalism, you don't have people assigned to beat, and people have to pump out three stories a day for, you know, the blog, and they don't have time to research, you're not going to get very thoughtful reporting. So a lot of this is institutional. I wouldn't blame the individuals. I would blame the way that journalism is taking place, right? Um, in, individually, I mean, then the answer to that is how do people educate themselves about issues when they're writing about it? And you have to know you don't know things to know them. So until we have that kind of information about who's in jail, who goes to jail, um, the fact that it's poor, mentally ill, people with disabilities, women increasing, over a third of federal prison women incarcerated are indigenous women. Is there a crime wave being committed by indigenous women and girls, do we think? Or do we think that something else is going on? Um, so that's very difficult. So I suppose what I'm always asking people, and I ask them myself, is, um, like, we have to think. <laughs> we, have to, we have to be critical. We have to ask ourselves basic questions like, why is there a jail in my city? Why do I not know what happens about in it? Why am I not aware of, do I know how many employees are there? Do I know what happens there on a daily basis? Like, who provides the food? You know, just basic questions and basic curiosity that we should always be asking ourselves about social institutions, and we should be trying to get those answers. And if we can't get those answers, a red flag should go up for us, and we should say, something's not transparent here, and I, I don't know what's going on, and we should know. And that's, I think, where journalists should always start. Why don't I know this? Why don't people want me to know it? And what work do I have to do to figure it out? And there's also this idea that, for example, if you're, as Desmond Cole was told at the Toronto Star, right, that you can't be an activist and a journalist. Um, Desmond Cole has done a lot of activism around the police and carding in Toronto, which is their version of street checks. Um, he had gone to a police board meeting and, you know, refused to leave unless they addressed particular issues. And his editor at the Toronto Star eventually calls him in and says, um, I'm basically, I'm not comfortable with you playing both roles. Like, you can't both make the news and be covering the news and sort of says, you can't be a journalist and an activist and you have to choose. And Desmond says, I choose my community and walks out. Of course, part of the point of that was it was very anti-black because there's all kinds of journalists that are also activists, David Suzuki. Uh, you know, you can go on and on and list all kinds of white people as well, like particularly white people that have been environmental activists and environmental reporters with no problem. But when it becomes a black person, it's seen as a conflict. But... Um, that is a, a very sort of, I would say, not, not helpful idea in this day and age. Um, and this goes back to what I said about the prison strike. The only people that had access to information were advocates because the only people that could get the information were people that were willing to be there every day, understanding to, talking to prisoners, understanding the system, working on this, so that when a prison strike came out, we had access to prisons because we talked to prisoners all the time because we advocated with them. You can't call up from the newsroom and expect that somebody who's in prison is just going to talk to you, right? So you actually do need to be an advocate and an activist to get information about a lot of things. You can't just walk into a black community and ask people, like, oh, you know, like, now tell me things. <laughs> like, yeah. it doesn't work that way, right? So, in fact, that relationship building is actually reporting and is actually journalism, but it gets read as bias or um, it's not real reporting. I get told that all the time as a black woman who does, like, explicitly political reporting, but, like, my bias is a clear. Everybody knows what I believe, but when I write the story, somehow that's not real journalism, even though the only person that's getting information from inside the prison is me. Somehow that's less journalism than the person that's just talking to the justice minister and taking his word as law, right? Um, 
So I think it, it raises a lot of the ways in this world, do those traditional instruments work to get the kind of information we need? And I would argue, like, no, they don't. Sometimes even when I read stories that are ostensibly positive, like about um, arts programs, drama programs, or literacy programs or something, um, they'll still um, they'll still do things like name, again, name the crime of people who are incarcerated, um, even if the, the story has nothing to do with that crime. Do you think that there's a way that good intentions can kind of skew a person's ability to critically analyze their own deeply held beliefs? Yeah, well, so then there's a few things there. So one is um, often the reporter is supposed to be in the place of so-called asking the questions that the public would ask, right? The idea is that the public is going to want to know what crime that committed, and they're going to judge the, the story based on that. So you should say it because people are going to ask anyway. So there's sort of an idea, especially in, say, interviews, where the interviewer plays this role where they sort of ask what the public imagined would ask, right? So we're going to ask you, you know, but do, you, do you think that violent women should be, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, are you saying that people who commit murder shouldn't be in jail for life? You know, like they, they and the idea is that's going to come up anyway, so you should address it. Um, but that makes a, a number of assumptions. So there's always an idea of the public that's interesting to me, and I go back to street checks on this, right, where the public is imagined. People may not understand they're imagining the public this way, but they're imagining it as white, right? So when they say, well, isn't it an issue of public safety? Black people are a member of the public, too, right? So our safety is jeopardized when we're being checked. But when, as reporters have asked me, when they say, well, what about public safety? They don't understand that they have always imagined the public that matters is white and the people who can be sacrificed and the collateral damage to that public are black people. I think, again, there's a lot of ideas that aren't deconstructed and that is sort of taken for granted. And I think this is where, um, like I would say as a black reporter, when we don't, share a lot of those common views. So I don't begin a story about the police by assuming that the police are good and they're not racist and they're here to help us. I don't begin a story on the courts by assuming that the courts are always just and that they're always fair, because I know that not to be true. I don't begin a story on the prisons by, you know, if I talk to the head of corrections, they're not going to tell me a lie because they, you know, would never do that. I know that's not true because I know, and I'm not saying because of my opinion, I'm not saying it's something that I've conjured up. I'm saying I can read report after report after report. What happened with Ashley Smith? What happened with Matthew Hines? You know, you can go back and read inquiries and reports and see all the times that these institutions have lied and covered up and not done their job, right? We can go over and over. So I'm saying out of fact, I know this, out of previous evidence, out of, you know, all everything we've been shown, but yet, um, you know, white people tend to always def- default to the idea that, that the institution is good and right, and it, it, you know, if mistakes are made, it's unintentional. And this is where I think white reporting, I'm not saying every white person, but when you talk about like good intentions, it's not about that somebody's coming in and reporting and they mean to, you know, when you, you um, report on a case and you take information from the Crown and you print it as though it's your opinion, but it's really, as though it's facts, but it's just opinion from the Crown, um, you believe that because that's an authority person, that person thinks somebody in authority wouldn't lie to me. If you're black, you know people in authority lie to you, so you don't really start at that position. You're like, going to apply a skeptical and critical mind. Maybe the person is telling the truth, but maybe they're not. So do you understand what I'm saying here, right? I do, um, yeah. Yeah, but there's a lot of assumptions that aren't interrogated, and it's not because people are stupid. It's not because people are ill-intentioned. It's not for anything like that. It's just if we haven't learned to interrogate those things, then we, we also assume they're true. El, I I really appreciate all the time you've taken today. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
And now it's time for our signature segment, pull quotes. Lydia, what's your pull quote? My pull quote this week is from a Huffington Post article about why outing a sex worker can have devastating consequences. The article is by Aldonado, and they bring up the case with Nadia Guo. When she was outed by the Toronto Sun the day before her good character hearing for the Law Society of Ontario, Nadia is a law student and being outed uh, really had devastating consequences on her career and also on her mental health. And uh, my pull quote is uh, from Nadia in Al's article uh, where she says, I wanted to protect my dad and my mom from the viciousness that I was experiencing more than anything. I feel like I can handle whatever stuff I had to deal with, but the hardest thing has been how the media is making my family deal with it too. They're innocent to all of this, which uh, really echoes um, the sentiment that media has can have damaging consequences on people's lives if they're not careful with their power, and thought that was just a really good article by Al. Thank you, Lydia. Uh, Michal, what is your pull quote? On Monday, a report commissioned by uh, Environment and Climate Change Canada was leaked to Neil MacDonald. It's called Canada's Changing Climate Report, or CCCR. It basically explained that Canada is warming at twice the rate of the rest of the world and went into detail about what that will look like, and it is absolutely grim and terrifying. The CBC published an opinion piece by MacDonald, separate from their story on the report, with the headline, Report on Devastating Canadian Climate Change, a Far Bigger Issue Than Jody Wilson-Raybould, Neil MacDonald. He basically explains how devastating the results from the study are. To a millennial, the findings should inspire naked fear, he writes. And as a millennial, I can say that they absolutely do. He explains that we have to make drastic changes immediately if we want to avoid absolute disaster. What's standing in the way of this, he posits, is the coverage around Jody Wilson-Raybould. Uh, Trudeau did eject Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott on Tuesday, which was the day that the climate report was set to be released officially. At the end of McDonald's piece, he lays out Trudeau's probable move to boot Wilson-Raybould and Philpott, and my pull quote is, Then he wants to start talking about the climate change report. Just to add a guess, though, Jody Wilson-Raybould will relegate climate change to the inside pages, just as she's done with everything else. I do think this climate change report uh, deserves our absolute full attention, and I think it's more important and more consequential than a political scandal. But I also think that to suggest that Wilson-Raybould is personally responsible for taking up more space than, say, climate change is pretty misguided. This is a sentiment I've been hearing from a lot of people. They think she wants attention. They think she's trying to bring down the Liberal Party. But it's an editor's job to decide whether she gets the front page. There's absolutely room to be critical about how much media attention she's getting, but I don't think she's to blame for that. And I really do hope that this report gets the attention it requires. Thanks, Michal. And that's our show. Pull Quotes is produced by Michal Stein and by me, Lydia Avraham. Thanks to Olsen Crow, Al Jones, and Jackie Amstead for joining us this week. Thanks to Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna for technical help. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. If you learned something today, please help us spread the word by sharing our show on social media and leaving us a rating on iTunes. The print edition of the Ryerson Review of Journalism will launch on April 17th. You can buy a subscription on our website or check for details about our launch party. You can find me on Twitter at Liddy Abraha. And me at Michal Stein too. 
You can also visit rrj.ca for new stories every week. We'll see you next week for the final episode of Season 2 of Pull Quotes. Pull Quotes.